Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, corona deaths are falling in Spain and Germany is considering easing its restrictions, but the UK is on course to record the worst death rate in Europe. What did our government do wrong? Are we even able to judge at this stage? And with news emerging that the government is using confidential patient data in response to the outbreak, should that worry us? What does the leak of the Labour Party anti-Semitism investigation mean for Keir Starmer's delicate business of reuniting the party? Plus, corona has upended the entertainment industry and changed our relationship with technology. Who are the winners? Who are the losers? And what will it mean for the streaming TV giants who suddenly own everybody's evenings? All that and more on today's Bunker. Hello and thanks for listening to The Bunker. As you might see in your feed, we're also putting out The Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays with conversations with major figures like Nigella Lawson and Lisa Nandy, plus explainers like our NHS background piece. We're now reaching 300,034,974,000 listeners, or a pretillion as the correct (laughs) term has it. So don't forget to subscribe. It'll take a nation of pretillions to hold us back. On our panel today, back on the show for the first time in a while, it's the editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian Dunt. Do you read me? You're coming in loud and clear. I do. I do indeed. Yes, hello. Places. We're now measuring out our days in government COVID briefings, and the elusive Carmen San Diego of the Home Office, Pretty Patel, dropped herself in it last week's in during last week's <laughs> briefing when she said she was sorry if people feel there have been failings. Well, everybody went mad about this. Were people right to seize on that as a non-apology? Yeah, I mean, we know, we know this formulation pretty well, right? Which is where you turn it around and say, "Well, actually, it's sort of your fault for feeling this way." However. Sometimes people just say words and doesn't necessarily mean that it's some kind of carefully collaborated sort of strategy. But Alok Sharma, the business secretary, I think the next day then came out with basically exactly the same formulation on access to equipment. You know, incredibly sorry that people feel they are not able to get access to it. And at that point, you start to think, well, that looks like the kind of thing that, that that's actually the, the formal message that is intended to go out. And by that point, it becomes a little bit more troubling. Do you think it's become ingrained in the kind of class of person who becomes a, a, a politician, and particularly a conservative politician now? More than politics speak, it's corporate speak, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But it's also this sort of fundamental lack of confidence that it exhibits. I mean, the real confidence in a situation like this, especially something like coronavirus, where 
people don't really expect you to get everything right. Like everyone understands, no matter how critical you are of the government, this is unprecedented, the scale of it, the speed of it. It's going to take time to get things right. So you do actually have the opportunity to just say, I'm sorry, we got this wrong. We're going to try something else. And in fact, if you look at Emmanuel Macron, who has been getting an awful lot of things wrong in his statement yesterday, that was precisely what he did. But we don't really seem to have that from our guys. There's still this kind of resistance towards making any apologies, taking any blame, towards just being straight up with people. Continuing in the week in statements, uh, the Prime Minister's out of hospital. He made rather a staring statement thanking those who looked after him. Do you think that the experience has actually affected his political outlook? Yeah, and I know I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be called naive for this, and I'm sure that he will go on to disprove me very, very quickly and very, very aggressively. But I've got to say, you it really would take something to go through something like that. He said, you know, it was touch and go. And by the time that you're in that situation with coronavirus, it usually is touch and go without being changed. And I think you could see in him a certain degree. I I thought he came across as much more genuine and much more actually heartfelt than I've, I've ever seen him behave before. I was really struck and really, really encouraged by him going out of his way to point out the immigrant nature of the nurses that treated for him, him, one from New Zealand, one from Portugal, to say where they were from, to name them. And it just properly seemed to me like a moment that we could actually, you know, from a pro-immigration standpoint, actually make good use of to say, look, we've got a marker here. We've got a moment where people are paying attention with a prime minister. Look, to, to all intents of it seems genuinely moved by what took place. And that gives us a position to start making the case for immigration in a way that we struggled to do so before. And I, I don't think we should give up that opportunity. Also returning to the bunker, Atlantic staff writer, author of Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in the Eleven Fights, Helen Lewis. Hello, Helen. How are you doing? Hi, I'm coming to all the way from South London. The miracles of technology. <laughs> well, they never end. It's unbelievable. You can't even hear the gurgling river. So, Helen, Keir Starmer got on the wrong end of a Conservative MP pile-up this week when he tweeted that it was insulting of the government to imply that frontline staff are wasting their PPE. Why are politicians finding it so hard to disengage from blame tennis at the moment? I think that's probably because that's what, to some extent, what politics is. And I think if you're the leader of the Labour Party, you probably should be ending on the on the wrong end of a Twitter pile from Tory MPs every so often, because you're going to inevitably have to point out times that they've, they've got things wrong. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? He, he explicitly went in saying, you know, I'm going to oppose in a constructive way. And in the same way that I think Jeremy Corbyn probably regretted the phrase kind of gentler politics entering the political lexicon, <laughs> Keir Starmer is going to have to deal with people going, oh, well, this doesn't seem very constructive, does it? You've just said we were doing something wrong. But the point is that you have to assess whether or not he has actually got a point. And on PPE, you know, I don't think we, we really think there is a serious problem of people carelessly putting on, you know, gloves and hats for a kind of reenactment of... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Sweeney Todd or something in the in the in the A and E that you know the people are if anything are really struggling to source what they need, particularly in care homes. So I'm I'm sorry it's going to make people uncomfortable to be, have, point out their failings, but they're just going to have to get over it. Are you saying that you're sorry that they feel that way? <laughs> I am very. I'm sorry if anyone was offended. What, 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 did, what did you make of Pretty Patel's debut performance behind the lectern of destiny? Because everybody said that if Diane Abbott had ballsed up a number like that, she would have been absolutely dragged for it. But apparently, it's okay for Pretty Patel to do so. I don't really understand the premise of this question because before you were talking to Ian, saying you know she, everyone said she was terrible and was incredibly offended by her. So, who are these people that think Pretty Patel did well? Are they in fact? 
conservative MPs because I think this happens quite a lot in politics right and you kind of go and it particularly when Diane Abbott is is invoked it's a kind of well a Diane Abbott would have been told that she was terrible for doing it well Pretty Patel was told that she was terrible for mm. doing it and what happens is that the people who defend Diane Abbott are Labour supporters and the people who defend Pretty Patel are Tory supporters and I find that you know what I mean it's a bit like the kind of oh the MSM aren't, aren't holding um, Boris to account or whatever it was and and I thought you know I, it's, it's one of those things where I'm going to need you to narrow down your parameters like <laughs> who said who said Pretty Patel is amazing and you know this is the day that she really became president because I actually haven't seen anyone outside of the Conservative Party really doing that. Our guest for this week is technology writer Stuart Dredge, who edits music industry publication Music Ally and writes about apps, tech, startups, and everything with plugs in it for The Guardian and The Observer. In January 2018, he was telling you how to kick your iPhone addiction. Now he's telling you stay on your iPhone all the time. It's just great. Hello, Stuart. Welcome to the bunker. How are you? Hello, thank you for having me. I'm good, thanks, good. How, how have you been finding lockdown so far? This must be, you must be in hog heaven. You're in your wheelhouse. I kind of am. I'm kind of giddy because I've had a week off homeschooling, to be honest. So I know how teachers feel now whenever they kind of have these to holidays. Um, <laughs> I'm spending this week trying to give myself a crash course in maths for 10-year-olds so that next time I try, I can remember how to do long division. But no, it's been... Um, it's been okay. Like suddenly all the things I spout about how you can do stuff with technology is being tested for better or worse. Has the Corona episode kind of killed the whole screen time is bad debate because screen time is pretty much the only thing that's not just keeping us sane, but also managing the kids. I think maybe it has. I think maybe it's killed the idea of counting your screen time and this many hours is good and this isn't bad. Like it's whatever you can get through the day with without killing your kids or kind of drinking all the gin in the house. Um, I think it's always been about what you're doing with that time is the important thing. So if you're sitting here stress refreshing three Guardian coronavirus live blogs and Twitter and feeling terrible, screen time is still terrible, I think. Um, but if you're that person, that mythical person who's learning Danish on Duolingo and looking up bread recipes and so on, um, it's amazing. So, yeah, it's a weird. I think people are starting to realise what the positive stuff that these, these devices bring and also some of the negative stuff. Um, and in the middle of that somewhere is, is binging Tiger King in a day. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's on the amazing or terrible side. Um, but I think I think for parents, there's certainly been a sense of like, if you can get your kids to do some schoolwork, if you can get them out for one walk, then basically fill your boots, play Fortnite, do YouTube. Like you've, you've done the stuff you need to do. Crack away. Let's start with the continuing coronavirus emergency. Specifically, how bad can it get and how long will it last? Over the weekend, the number of UK deaths rose above 10,000 and one of the government's own scientific advisors said that the UK could have the worst death rate in Europe when this is all over. Meanwhile, doctors and nurses are struggling to get the protective kit they need in order to stay safe at work. Helen, Boris Johnson retained a lot of public sympathy and, and support in the polls during this. Do you think it's likely to last when he comes back to work full time? Uh, that I mean, you'd expect him to come back to work within a matter of weeks. I think the more interesting thing is probably what happened at the end of, say, June. So Ian mentioned Emmanuel Macron, who said, you know, I'm, I'm, he, he wanted to reopen the schools in May because they're exacerbating um, existing inequalities, right? If, you know, kids who are on free school meals, it's difficult to feed them. There is an, an established effect called the summer holiday effect, you know, where, where poor kids by and large fall backwards during the holidays and, and middle class and upper kids get better. And that will all be happening, right? But but then he said, additionally, you know, I, I'm not expecting the rest of the stuff to be, you know, e at least until July. And that's the thing that I think it's really too early to do. Everybody is, you know, rallying around Boris Johnson stuff because 
we don't even know when we're ever, you know, when anything like a normal life is going to come back again. Equally well, there might be a case where we ease some restrictions up and then see another surge and have to kind of lock them back down again. That is just at the moment totally impossible to calculate. And I think by November, people might be getting pretty bored and stressed and fed up and the kind of, you know, wanting, basically wanting their lives back becomes so acute whatever the government's done will deem to have been a bad thing. So I'm, yeah, having spent the whole of like the last five years of politics saying I'm no longer doing predictions, I'm really, uh, could not be more committed to that stance right now. Ian, John, the obvious question everybody has asked would be, would, would shutting Britain down earlier have saved more lives? Uh, the White House's infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, am I saying it right? So that if they'd shut down earlier, it would change things there. Can we ever know? And would any minister ever admit that the advice they followed was wrong anyway? We surely can, though, can't we? I mean, you know, what more evidence could we ask for? I mean, when we look at countries across the world, see over and over again, when you shut down, you can deal with it now. And I don't really hear anyone questioning that. What I hear occasionally is people saying, is it worth the economic cost? Which is a different question and, and not an invalid question, but it's not the same question. I mean, if you want to sort this thing, then you shut down. And we didn't do that. I mean, on the most generous appraisal, and I would say even this right now, is as far as there is a consensus on what's going on, it pretty much is a consensus on the fact that we were very late. I'm talking around sort of Westminster botherers, basically, people chatting around it. On the most generous appraisal of that, I'd say most people think, look, you're a week or two late. Others, you know, the question they're asking is, you, you know, what the fuck were they doing in February? Beyond any notion of shutdown, you just think, why was there not more preparatory work going on before March hit, when we got that inexorable rise towards where we are now? Why was there not more preparatory work going on then? So, I mean, I, I don't think that there's much controversy on that point. What troubles me on whether they're going to admit it is even listening to the to the sort of scientific advisors, they don't seem particularly keen on giving us a straight account of what has taken place so far. I mean, I'm starting to... Patrick Valance is starting to concern me a little bit. I mean, when I was listening to him talk about testing recently, um, and he was saying, well, look, you know, we, we did all right with testing at the beginning. This is yesterday, I think. So we did all right with testing at the beginning, but we haven't scaled it up as fast as we needed to. Now, the thing is, that is not what they were saying last month. I mean, last month, they were saying that, that testing wasn't an appropriate mechanism as we go forward. That was what we were being told uh, by Jenny Harries from Public Health England. And so on that basis, because it keeps on changing, the same thing has happened with the account of PPE about whether it's distribution rather than procurement. On both of those stories, I don't hear consistency between the story that we were told last month to the one we do now. So I would expect very little from them in the future about recognising the reality of what went wrong. This is already the defining crisis of, of Johnson's government. I'll be very surprised if anything worse than this can happen in the course of the next five years. But <laughs> why would you say that, Andrew? I don't know. Yeah. That? <laughs> that, I want to be the that didn't age well guy of the yeah, year, as the asteroid you know, hits the Earth. Yeah. Twenty twenty eight. Well, I guess we've seen off the worst thing that can possibly happen in my lifetime: <laughs> explosions. Um, but I mean, in in this world of confusion, where you know a great deal of technical data um, is being spewed out. At us from different uh, from different sources. It is very hard for the average you know person paying attention, the average voter, to be able to understand what's you know what is is really going on. Are people falling back on their basic tribal loyalties and saying yes, Boris is doing a great job, or Boris Johnson is is uh, you know superintending a a, a a kind of you know mass call of uh, of the population because he's an evil Tory, as we hear it all over the place in their social media. Or do people just fall back on their tribal uh, certainties? 
I mean, look, there's obviously a bit of that, right? Like, um, I've seen quite a few people who just couldn't bear to say a single nice thing about Johnson, even when he was in hospital, or about the things he said when he came out, which you sort of think, you know, from a liberal left perspective, it was the kind of thing you would want to hear at that moment. And not something, by the way, that I think Theresa May would have said, you know, coming out of that situation. Um, and on the other side, you see, like, some of the more deranged parts of the right have now fallen into what's basically hero worship. In fact, it's almost like magical incantations towards, you know, preserving Boris Johnson's body as, so that the health of the British body politic could be, you know, quite weird, mucky, bit fascist sort of stuff coming out. Well, that, of course Arthurian that's Arthurian at best. That's the kind of thing we could say about it is kind of Arthurian. Exactly. But then, but I don't, I don't see that that is everyone. I mean, I, I, still see a, a lot, probably the majority of Boris critics, certainly online, which is, you know, where I'm getting the majority of my stuff now because I'm not allowed to see real life human beings anymore, um, actually giving him a pretty fair chance. And I'm seeing quite a lot of quite pro-Brexit um, people who are previously quite supportive of him starting to ask questions. So yes, of course, there's some tribalism bubbling around there, but that's not the entirety of the story at the moment, not at all. Stuart Dredge, uh, the government is reportedly considering uh, bringing in a contact tracing app uh, using, um, you know, proximity data from phones uh, to, to check out, you know, if you've been in contact with a with a, a COVID infected person. Can you explain a bit more about that? Is it likely to work? Are the precedents for this kind of thing? Yeah, so we're going to hear a lot about contact tracing in the next few days, I think. Um, so this is from NHSX, which is the NHS's, I think it's called Digital Innovation Unit, which separates it from the digital <laughs> do things as they always used to be done. Unit. But it's being tested this week with a few farmers. And the idea is, yeah, you basically tell the app if you've self-diagnosed with coronavirus, and then it will tell the people you've recently been in contact with, it will give them a yellow alert saying you may have been in contact with someone who's got it. And then if you get a test confirming that you have it, you'll get a little code, you'll enter that, and then they'll get a stronger alert, everyone you've been in contact with saying, to quarantine. Um, and what it's using is the Bluetooth in your phone, not 5G, thankfully, for all the people out there who, who are <laughs> wearing tinfoil. Um, so it basically, it's when your phone detects another handset with the app running, it will just know. And it gets around that idea of you can be asked, where did you go? Who did you see? But you don't know the person you walked past in the supermarket or the person you bumped into in the road. So this gets around that by basically saying, right, we're going to automatically track who you've been near and then we'll warn them if they need to self-isolate. Um, and the other thing about it is it's it's an app being developed by the NHS, but it's using technology or it's going to use technology that Apple and Google are developing together. They're developing the API that apps around the world can tap into for this sort of thing. So it's kind of big tech on one hand and then our public service on the other making use of it. And it's reportedly opt-in. No, I mean, I, I can say, I mean, as a complete person who doesn't know what they're talking about, I can suspect there might be two problems with this. One is it's opt-in, so you have to actively do it which kind of biases it towards people who are technologically minded. And also, if it's using Bluetooth, I don't know about you, but I mean, the people I know in the high-risk group, they ring me at the weekend and say, the internet is broken, we need to buy a new internet. They ask me to reprogram their Netflix down the phone. Is it going to reach those people who uh, need it? Mm. Well, so a lot of it, so the fact that Apple and Google are involved in this sense is good because they have the, they run the operating systems on the phone. So they can, they can use their messages. They can really pop, pop up something and say, do you want to do this? They can do stuff that's a lot more in your face. Do you agree to do this? Here's why. Than maybe a, a, just an app made by any other person could do. Um, a lot of it's going to be in that messaging. Like, how are you asked to opt in? What language is used? How do they explain it? How comfortable people feel tapping yes? And that's like a, that's a, I don't know, that's going to be a, a, 
really just careful writing, really careful communication skills. Um, um, and then, yeah, you're right. Bluetooth is another thing. Is it accurate enough? Because uh, it can measure, you can, you might be on the other side of a thin wall to someone and it will say you've contacted them, but actually you haven't been near them. Um, and the other thing is it relies on a lot of people being tested. So you, you start by self-diagnosing, but then you get a test. So obviously as we ramp up the testing, that's going to be quite important for this. It's making me think a little about the, the detector thing in aliens. You know, they're in they're in the, they're in the walls, man. One thing that people have have increasingly kind of focused on is that there isn't going to be going to be a final day when we say, well, it's all sorted now. Tomorrow, everybody go to the pub. This is going to drag on into the future. Does using proximity apps like this and technical solutions to health does it set a bad precedent for the future? If this is going to roll on for a long time, and embedding in people's lives the idea that you're forever kind of proximity testing people. I think it does. I think it has huge implications because like, like you say, there are things that we would agree to knowingly at a time like this. And we say, right, okay, we'll agree not to go out that much. We'll agree to have these things in the supermarket because we see the importance. But yeah, when is the end of it? When can you opt back out of this? Or will it be turned off? And who turns it off? And who makes the decision? Like a lot, there's a lot of questions around how this will work. And I mean, one good thing I think is the last couple of years of news stories has taught us to always question the big tech companies, to question governments too about well, I understand my data is personal and private, should be. So how are you using it? How secure is it? Can anyone hack into it? How will it be deleted? All these questions that I think maybe two years ago, I would, wouldn't say the average person in the street is going around thinking about this, but certainly we have journalists who will get the bit between their teeth and will ask those questions now. Um, and the other, I think the other issue with this, well, actually, the, the other thing we need to be aware of is there's a lot of reasons why it could be a really good thing. And there's a lot of places that it could go wrong or it could fall down and what you don't want to be doing is making some of those decisions in a hurry but of course we are in a massive hurry because if we're going to get it to work we're going to get it out there so i think that's the real challenge is how to how to answer the privacy questions how to make it properly secure in a rush which is you know often where things go a bit awry Helen, then in one, one last technology question before we move on. A story emerged in the Guardian uh, at the weekend about the government using confidential, anonymized patient data to help with the coronavirus response. The U.S. data firm that's involved is Palantir, Peter Thiel's company, working with a British AI startup called Faculty. One of the models that was constructed involved herd immunity, uh, supposedly after the policy had been dropped. And Carol Cadwallader described this process as Cambridge Analytica on steroids. Should we worry about that? Or, you know, is, is it just that there's an awful lot of scary uh, factors involved, such as the name of Peter Thiel and the words herd immunity? No, I mean, that's, you know, if you ever have any interest in civil liberties, the main problem about it is there is always a reason whether or not it's, you know, we have to stop the terrorists, so you need to do this, or whatever it is. It's it's always, there is always a balance to be struck between people's privacy and whatever your other policy goal is. And I don't think, I think Stuart's entirely right. This is absolutely no exception. My problem with the herd immunity thing, and I would preface this by saying, unlike men on Twitter and indeed medium, I'm not an epidemiologist, not even an amateur one. Um is that as I understand it to some extent that is that is ultimately the final strategy right there are the only way to 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 have go back to normal life is either a vaccine which gives you herd immunity because enough people have the vaccine that actually you know these big outbreaks can't start up or through natural herd immunity which means enough people have had it and they've got antibodies and therefore it kind of can't you know pass on between people so for all that people say herd immunity has been abandoned what do they actually kind of mean by that? Well, they seem to mean that we went instead to a policy of much harder suppression. Um, you know, in the imperial um, 
college report said you know there was a danger to this that actually you might get a second peak uh, and that might kind of be worse and you had to try and you know use the suppression really to build as much nhs capacity as you wanted to but that also talked about the fact that you know you'd have to have intermittent social distancing measures until november of next year um, and i don't think that bit has really kind of got a, across to people that that's how the long term that we're thinking of but this is what worries me about stories about about this and i think Stuart's entirely right to bring up the concept of, of testing is that this only works if you is as part of a package of measures and all of them have got to be in place and working really well otherwise you end up giving people a very false sense of security and also the other thing is that you know but people say how, how amazing hong kong's response has been hong kong if you come into contact with someone who's infectious you get put in a kind of covid butlins for for two weeks right they put you they they literally take you away from your family and put you in a facility and you know, for all the people sort of pushing track and trace here, do we really think that, I mean, I was getting messages from people in March who still thought they were going to the theatre the next week. And I had to be like, I'm just really going to level with you. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen for a really long time. So I just think that people still haven't quite got their heads around about the, the long term nature of some of this stuff is going to have to happen. And therefore getting it right becomes even more important. Meanwhile, believe it or not, other stories are happening. Come warm your hands on the continually raging binfire that is the Labour Party. No sooner has Keir Starmer taken over with a promise that he wanted any outstanding anti-Semitism investigations to be on his desk by the end of the week than the 860-page report into Labour's handling of anti-Semitism completed in the last few months of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership landed on everybody's desks because it was leaked on the internet. The report concludes that hostility to Corbyn curbed effects to tackle anti-Semitism and those on the right of the party are sceptical that it was written by Corbynites in order to protect themselves. So, Ian, as we reset the days since party unity questions counter down to zero, <laughs> what actually happened here? Give us, a, give us, give us the quick rundown on the story. What has happened with this leak? Uh, well, you've just described it very, very well. I mean, it's basically like an answer. You know, if you if you'd ever sat and wondered, you know, if it was the end of the world, would that at least stop Labour's internal tribal warfare? And the answer now demonstrated is no that will not stop it um and I've got I an image of a space capsule tumbling into the sun and people inside <laughs> it are just going gramsci no <laughs> anyway exactly. i mean you know i can't look i haven't i haven't read all of this thing because it was incredibly long and you know there's other stuff going on and and i sort of i i was quite resentful of the fact that they were doing this at this time anyway um but i, I what i couldn't find you know, the, the argument is basically, you know, leadership team up until sort of mid-2018, um, a bigger part of not the leadership team, uh, the general secretary really, um, were so opposed to Corbyn that it simultaneously got in the way of us dealing with anti-Semitism issues um, and secondly, took away our chance to win a general election. And you can sort of see the argument. I mean, the, the argument was online in Labour, you know, for a really long time before then. You, you always hear Richard Bergen or whatever would be banging on about, well, we would have won the election, you know, in 2017 if it wasn't for the fact that all the sort of Blairites were agitating against us and blah, blah. But I don't see anything in the report that actually demonstrates that. It's basically that they've spent a lot of time trawling through a lot of emails and WhatsApp conversations to find all the dreadful things people have said, of which there are many. And they are some very dreadful things by people who clearly think that they're Malcolm Tucker and, and are nowhere near as witty or as brutal. Um, but it doesn't seem to add up to the conclusion that it is supposed to contain so on that point, as well as just sort of being oddly timed, it's quite a frustrating read because I don't see that it makes the point that they desire it to. 
Helen, a former Labour spad, uh, described the report as written by Corbynites who deliberately leaked it, blaming their anti-Semitism on other people plotting against Jeremy. Is this just the outgoing regime trying to kind of salt the earth or is, is there truth in this report? What's your take on it? It's not just that, but it definitely is that. Um, Emily Oldno of Unison was quite heavily tipped to be the Labour's next general secretary with the idea that Jenny Formby, you know, was not going to be uh, not going to survive under the new regime. And you can see there's lots of her in this report, lots of her private WhatsApp group messages. And it, you know, the best way to see this report really is the case for the defence for Corbynites in Labour's headquarters, because the case it's trying to make is, is as Ian was saying, that while Ian McNichol was General Secretary in the early years of Corbynism up to April 2018, there was a huge problem with dealing with anti-Semitism complaints. And this was down, and the first 100 pages, 100 pages of 800-page report, <laughs> let me just put, <laughs> say that again, are, dedica- are like a, just a huge burn book, basically, dedicated to making the case that <laughs> Labour's existing staff didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, they were from the Brownite wing of the party, they thought anyone to the right to anyone to the left of Gordon Brown was a quote-unquote trot and they tried to undermine him for the st- from the start now I don't know why it took them a hundred pages to make this case <laughs> which is a case that everybody accepts and has accepted ever really ever since the time it was quite weird to spend yesterday on Twitter looking at all these people sort of saying you know the thing about Tom Watson is that he plotted against the Labour leader and you're like well <laughs> narrow it you know t- tell it to Tony Blair <laughs> <laughs> Just, just astonishing. But the, the really fascinating thing to my mind about, you know, obviously, the, you want to ask Qui Bono, right, who benefits from leaking, from A, writing this report, and B, from leaking it, which is what Keir Starmer's investigation is going to look at, right, both the contents of the report, who commissioned it, and also why it was leaked. And I don't really understand why the, you know, Corbynite HQ team think that this is a really great thing for them, because it made the case very explicitly that, you know, anti-Semitism was not an MSM smear, right? That is something that's taken as an absolute given in this report. There were genuine serious problems with anti-Semitic members in Labour. So obviously there's some of the people on the Corbynite left were very upset about this yesterday when this came out, having, you know, said, made that case quite heavily. You know, it's something that both Diane Abbott and Len McCluskey said at various times. You know, Len McCluskey said it was mood music to undermine Corbyn. Well, there, you know, that is now being directly contradicted by this by this submission, and so that's why, uh, you know, it's 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 basically dedicated to saying yes, anti-Semitism was a real problem, but the reason we couldn't solve it was because the Brownites were against us, and then anti-Semitism as a problem sort of ended in 2018. You know, with those complaints were dealt with no slower or than any other type of complaint, which doesn't really work. Because because Pete Wilsman was on the National Executive Committee after that time, you know, still saying that it was all down to Trump fanatics who were cooking this whole thing up. And that was in the in the Formby period. And, you know, no one made, you know, no Brownite in Labour headquarters made Jeremy Corbyn say that Zionists, you know, don't understand English irony, that made him say that, it, you know, not see any problems with that mural of hook-nosed bankers on the backs of the poor. Trying to just try and say that basically, you know, it was it was all the other faction. I can understand that they're still very bitter about the fact that they didn't get a fair crack of it when they took over with that overwhelming mandate from the members. But at this point, I really did feel multiple, like, let it, just let it go, guys. Let it go. But isn't that, but the, then that, you, that, is the, that is the truth of it, really, isn't it? It's like the, this is going to not necessarily ensure, but certainly prolong the thing that has sustained that whole project, which is a sense of embattlement and grievance and conspiracy. 
Well, that's what I felt very strongly at the Rebecca Long Bailey rally. It was filled with people who didn't want the civil war to be over. They they wanted to keep fighting it and they wanted to win it. Whereas Keir Starmer's pitch was, you know, it can be over. We can all kind of come back together again. And I think that, you know, just as clearly lots of people in the original Corbyn, you know, under Corbyn HQ didn't see him as legitimate. There are people who now don't see anyone as any, anyone outside their own project really as a truly legitimate leader. This is, you know, but this is never going to be, resolve because there are two very different labor traditions and you can pick you know your examples of, of unfairness you know all these say it's very unfair to describe you know all the labor staffers as and, and corbyn supporters as trots and i agree that is really deeply unfair at the same time though they did bring in in andrew murray someone who had been previously a member of the communist party <laughs> Right. Mm. So this, yeah, they were coming from outside the Labour mainstream and you can see why people in the Labour mainstream objected to that. But I just think it's, um, I think it, it's a big challenge to Keir Starmer. I think he's probably done the right thing in the sense of having an independent, I hope it will be an independent inquiry because the big demand has always been bring in training people from outside, you know, stop all this stuff being sucked into factionalism. And he has actually now got a chance to do that when huh. really very few people are paying attention. You know, I was trying to, mm. like Ian, I haven't, I have to, I haven't read every cough and spitter report. I've read several hundred pages of it, but trying to find someone to, who was reporting on this and in, in a way that I trusted, you know, Stephen Bush and the New Statesman eventually did it, but it's really hard because not that many people are interested in it. And the people who are interested in it tend to have already kind of made up their mind. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this suggests this is a brilliant time for Keir Starmer to deal with this while everyone's attention is elsewhere. Just get it, get it all out. Imagine wanting a battle to continue forever that had been lost. Have you heard our companion podcast, Romaniacs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stuart Dredge. Uh, this is... Uh, this is a massive data breach, isn't it? So, I mean, it, th- th- there are there's talk of people going to the information commissioner. There's talk of people having been libelled. There's talk of uh, compensation uh, claims against the Labour Party itself. Brackets under new management. Um, can we could we expect to see that people paying fines? Could people go to jail for leaking this? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's based on private communications, so the emails, and messages. So yeah, I think the Labour Party might need to report it to the information commissioner's office themselves. And there are quite clear rules about what counts as a breach and what you have to do. Um, and it could generate a complaint to the ICO as well from someone who's named in there. So there are kind of two ways it could end up with them. And then it's, do they want to open an investigation? Do they take action? And I guess I was thinking about who is the action taken against? Like you say, it's, it's a leak thing. So is it a Labour Party? Is it whoever did the leaking? And then we come into this, you know, juicy, stroke, terrifying territory of journalistic sources and protection and freedom of the press. So it's, it's going to be a, a, a wasp's nest. And like Helen said, just at the time when they'd probably rather get on with the actual task of sorting out anti-Semitism in the party, um, this is going to blow up. Um, but until yeah, and there'll be lawsuits. There will be lawyers talking, I think, about filing suits on, on the grounds people. And then, yeah, it's it's kind of, it, it does feel like that when they were, when um, Keir Starmer was on TV and Angela Rayner, they, they were making all the right kind of noises, like, this is how we're going to deal with this problem. Uh, and it was very clear cut, we're moving on. And now this, this report has come out and like you say, 800 pages of dragging everyone back into this massive internecine warfare. Yeah. If it isn't our old friend, fratricidal hatred in the Labour Party again. <laughs> Just to uh, to wrap it up, I mean, the argument that we would have won the uh, general election in 2017 if not for this, does that hold water? I have really strong opinions on this, which is partly that it was a very narrow election victory. So the case is ultimately unprosecutable. But what is worth saying is that there were people quite senior up in the Labour Party 
headquarters who didn't want to go from what they saw as marginal seats like Slough, which you know actually was was a, a, a solid Labour hold at the time, because they really wanted an absolute rock solid seat. It's very notable that Dan Carden, who was um, had a Liverpool seat, who was now McCluskey's protege, you know, when he got a really rock, you know, rock solid Liverpool Labour seat because they were feeling they were going to have to fight a pretty defensive campaign. Um, but what then happened was that Corbyn surged during the 2017 um, election. You know, Theresa May had a disastrous manifesto launch, was revealed as being an extremely wooden performer, and Labour's internal polling didn't pick up the extent of that quite the way it did, and they didn't react well enough and, and kind of go aggressively into the campaign. So you can make, you know, plus there's all the stuff in the report about whether or not Party HQ was favouring, you know, its candidates that it liked. Um, and actually that was to the detriment of people. But you then get to the 2019 campaign, right, where you have a headquarters filled with true blue Corbynites. They're totally in charge of it. And they do, guess what, they, they having the lesson they've taken from last time is the wrong one. As people always do, they fight the last campaign again and they go way overly aggressive and try and pitch for target seats that are, you know, are just never going to happen. And and then and, and then lose 2019 extremely heartily. And my worry about what's happened with this is it gives people a convenient stab in the back narrative for what went wrong in 2017. The convenient narrative for 2019 is, in which you saw Corbyn say in his exit statement, is that was the Brexit election, we never would have won it. And at no point do you ever have to deal with the idea that perhaps fundamentally people didn't like your candidate and people didn't like your policies and you need to have a look at those two things. If it's always someone else's fault or something, you know, something was against you what are you going to change next time to make those things not true and Keir Starmer was very clear during his campaign that you know that, that Corbyn did come up on the doorstep but also that the manifesto people might have liked individual elements of it just like 2017 but they felt it was like a sort of absurd dream list of like you know win a pony with Labour and you know and have a free swimming pool and a penguin and you know and, and at that point people are going to go always with Labour well who's going to pay for it um, and I think that he took the right lesson from that from that election. I'm worried that people will cling to this report as a kind of comfort blanket of we would have won if only everyone hadn't been against us inside Labour. <laughs> we would have won if only hadn't been against yeah, us. Right. Finally, technology. Amongst other things, the corona lockdown has been a massive accelerator for popular involvement in stuff that people would never otherwise touch. Everybody's employers are suddenly on Microsoft Teams, the world is living on Zoom, and your mum finally understands how WhatsApp works. <laughs> Meanwhile, up in the stratosphere of the economy, the virus has upended many supposedly bulletproof companies. Airbnb, Uber, and pretty much anything associated with travel are among those to suffer. And Amazon, Ocado, Biotech, and doctor-on-demand apps like Babylon have all been supercharged. So have streaming entertainment services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, and the newly launched Disney+, Plus, all of whom now have literally a captive audience. Under normal circumstances, you'd be expecting them to consolidate at some point. Now, who knows? Stuart Dredge, firstly, in terms of home use and, and kind of people's behaviour, what changes of usage have you, have you noticed? Does it go beyond everything happening on Zoom now? Are people kind of integrating technology into their lives more than they did? I think so. It's a massive chuck everything up in the air and see what falls down again. I mean, Zoom is interesting, though, because Zoom is not just communication, it's entertainment now. Like, people are sitting in the evenings doing pub quizzes with their friends. So you're watching your mates drinking wine on the TV while, while answering pub quiz questions. And that's no one predicted that was the entertainment of the year, I think. Um, 
But yeah, there's, there's a lot of data coming out. It's very early and very kind of patchy. So like Spotify says people are hammering children's playlists and mood music to calm themselves down. Um, gaming's having a big moment. I saw one US report, I think. It was about up 75% in peak hours. Um, that's from Metelka measuring sort of online gaming. Um, and then a lot of it traces back to what's changing. So we're not, many people aren't commuting, which is a big music and podcast kind of moment. Um, if they have children at home, that might affect what's being done because YouTube's being battered on the TV or on devices. Um, maybe listen to the radio more, not just because of the news, because it's actual real live people talking to us. And that suddenly that feels like an important thing. Um, and then stuff like massive entertainment things, like sports have disappeared. Um, although there's some stuff springing up now. Um, Disney Plus has launched and that's having a big moment. So it's like almost we had this, this reset moment of digital entertainment and we're just seeing what kind of sticks people have talked about in terms of work and people's work patterns people have talked about this as possibly being a major change moment in how we work kind of on a par with the second world war which had brought women into the workforce and so on have you noticed changes in you know, changes in working patterns that perhaps go beyond the, the whole idea of doing a zoom conference in your slippers um yeah i think so so i mean well, there's massive things like people are talking about universal basic income again and people who weren't talking about it before and that's the whole big debate that's, that's being had again by more seriousness but in terms of how we work, yeah, I think um, I think it's nuanced. So I think we're going to realise how we can remote work. Like the technology usually works. We can have team meetings. We don't have to be in an office five days a week, so maybe we shouldn't be. But I don't think that means we'll all work from home all the time. I think maybe we'll want to be back in the office and we'll want to be with people. So I think we'll maybe find a new balance that involves a bit more flexibility. Um, and I think companies who maybe argued that it wouldn't work, there's now some evidence that it can work if it's gone well. Um I mean, the same with Zoom, really, and video conferencing. Like, I think it's giving me a heightened sense of what is a 20-minute video conversation where I don't have to step across town and spend two hours doing. I could just get on the video chat and sort it out. But it's also given me a thought of, actually, there are some people I do want to go and meet, and there are some things about it. So I think we're going to have this sense in our heads. And same with industry conferences. Like, there are some conferences that will never come back because we'll realise we didn't miss them and didn't like them at all. But there'll be other ones that come back roaring next year because we'll realise that we did miss them and they were important. So I think... We're going to have a sharpened sense, maybe, of, of the things that do work for us and the things that don't. So it won't be swinging changes, but I think we're going to, I think we're going to maybe just junk the stuff that's that's uh, in the way, I suppose. Yeah. Helen, I just mentioned the, the effect of the Second World War uh, and bringing women into the workforce. What seems to have happened in this one is that it, it actually seems to have reinforced much more old-fashioned roles in that women are now at home having to parent and do all the traditional family wife-type roles and work at the same time. Do you see that? Do you see it as a kind of likely to, you know, to sort of maybe roll us backwards a bit? That was what I worried about when I wrote the first piece on this for The Atlantic. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of it is kind of structural, right? So of um, people in full-time employment, um, people in employment, um, only 13% of men work part-time, 40% of women. So there is already, you know, women have made the choice, whatever you want to frame it like, what, that way, of having more flexibility in their lives to be able to deal with things like childcare and elderly care. So I, I, I kind of thought, well, they're going to be the ones who are going to pick up the slack. But my favourite tweet maybe of the entire pandemic is one from this guy who tweeted... All those, you should definitely have children. They're the best thing and will bring meaning to your life. People have shut up, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> because now my Twitter feed of everybody I know who's got small children is just like, nursery you know, nursery teachers should be paid all of the money. Teachers are terribly underpaid. you know. And I think it's what's really good, I think, and, and I've seen a lot of that from men particularly, 
is there's this horrible discourse around, you know, early years of parenting, that it's the most important job in the world, which is the brackets after that, are, and therefore you shouldn't get any money for doing it. Uh, right? <laughs> like, oh, isn't it enough? You know, aren't we really doing the most important role in society? And you're like, well, if you are, why don't you ask to be paid like the CEO of Morgan Stanley? Right. And I think that's, I think a lot of, of men have maybe had their eyes open to actually how difficult it is to work from home and, and juggle that round childcare. And that maybe has been a, an interesting eye-opening experience for people. And also fundamentally, I think, you know, if I think a lot of working women who were juggling young kids and work were really felt that they had to hide the struggle, right? Because it made them look unprofessional. And what's happened now is that people have just got a bit more relaxed about the idea you might have to have a baby on your lap during a Zoom call or that you're, you know, we're now getting to a stage where kind of cabinet ministers, shadow cabinet ministers are being regularly interrupted by their children as they do an interview. And everyone's just got to like calm the, you know, hell down about it. That actually people live lives around their work and the only way that you can be this kind of pure instrument where all you do is work is by having a whole crew of support staff paid or unpaid around you. Um, and I think that's a much healthier way to regard the fact that, you know, that actually everybody has to kind of muddle through, particularly when kids are young. And we shouldn't hold it against them because it's a small part of their professional working lives. Stuart, let's go back to streaming, which I mentioned earlier. Um before Corona, Netflix was kind of like the service to beat. It was in the kind of, in, in the bully pulpit, I believe they say. Disney Plus was going to launch a not less diverse and obviously family based. Um, and Corona has up, up, upended everything. What do you, what do you think's happening? I mean, you mentioned something to me on email about subscription fatigue. Yeah, well, this is something. So, so this is in, in a way it hasn't upended things though, because this was always coming that this was going to be the year when Netflix would face this competition from Disney, um, from HBO in the states, from Apple. Like this has been coming for a while, and then Netflix, in a way, has been preparing for it by commissioning all its own shows. So now it has a massive catalogue that no one can pull away from it, like Disney has pulled Star Wars and Marvel off. Um, but yeah, it's kind of stark how different it is to music. So in music. Pretty much every service is everything. Like there was a time when there were exclusive things on Apple Music and not on Spotify, and they've junked that idea because everyone hated it. But that is really much par for the course in video. Uh, and if you want to watch a bunch of different shows, you've got this patchwork of services now of Amazon and Netflix and lucky to have the BBC in the UK we don't pay for. Um, and so, yeah, there is this thing that's been talked about since about March last year. Deloitte did a report and it found that people were starting to get frustrated at needing too many subscriptions. And it was partly about cost and it was partly about stuff you like suddenly disappearing because it's been taken by another service. And it was partly about just the cognitive fatigue of like, what show is on what service? How do I find the thing I want to watch? What's my password for Netflix again? Jesus Christ. And I think there is a sense of how many subscriptions can we not just afford, but can we can we deal with? Which is when ordinarily you'd expect there to be kind of consolidation, like you expect there to be a winner, but it doesn't look like it can possibly happen in the streaming world because... Apple is certainly not going to close Apple TV Plus down. It doesn't need to. It's an appendage to a gigantic company. Disney regards this as clearly a major thing that's going to carry them into the future. The, the old mechanics of consolidation don't seem like they're likely to work here. No, and certainly for some of those services, like for Apple, Amazon, Google, Windows stuff, what they do is other things. They sell advertising, they sell devices, like the, the familiar things you see. In, so for Apple to succeed, if, if TV shows and films are helping it, gets to buy an iPhone every two years, gets to buy an Apple TV, then they're doing their job. It doesn't have to beat Netflix. It's not really in that kind of game of I have to have more viewers. Um, 
But it is kind of interesting. I think there's stuff around the margins. So it's not just the big people. We're going to have some niche things. It's like an anime streaming service, a documentaries one. In music, you're starting to see classical and jazz service pop. So you're going to see little things popping up where the big guys aren't doing a good job. So in a way, we might get more fragmentation, not more consolidation. We often have heard uh, from kind of uh, libertarian blue sky types that we don't need the BBC because everything can be like Netflix and everything should be subscription based. Uh, But of course, the streamers, they're not TV stations. They don't have a public service remit. They don't do news. Uh, They only do children's programming of a particular kind. They don't do weather and sport and all the boring but essential stuff that the BBC do. And also, in the case of things like Disney and Apple, they have immensely strong brand ideas of what's the correct thing for them to put out. No sex and violence, no adult content, all that kind of stuff. And also, for instance, in Apple's case, don't upset China. So is it wise for us to kind of hand over the keys of the culture to these very large corporations, transnational corporations, whose agenda is not a public service one? I think it's because, for one thing, we're lucky to have the BBC in that we don't really know what it's like not to have a strong public service broadcaster like we do. And if someone in America, it's maybe not the same. Um, I think it's the same as a lot of media ownership questions. It's always good to know who owns the media and what they think. Um, so in Apple's case, there is definitely a China thing. And there was, I read a report about that saying, yeah, Apple has said, please don't be negative about China. And then someone was quoted from Hollywood saying, well, to be honest, all the studios say that sort of thing because they all want to sell their programs and films to China. So it's not so different from the way Hollywood is kind of step, stepping around some of these kind of global niceties. Um, but the other thing I suppose is, is that this, the intensifying competition can be good because there's a long tail. So I was thinking about this. If there's, a, if there's a great show that needs to be made and Apple doesn't like it, someone else probably will. Um, and there are there are great documentaries being made because Netflix is suddenly in the market to buy documentaries. There are so I think in a way, as long as there is competition and there's not one big service that's kind of uh, its culture is affecting the whole market, I think we'll be okay. But it is important, I think, to to always like like knowing what Rupert Murdoch thinks when you look at his papers. I think it's important to do that about the tech companies coming into TV. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Uh, We're all confined at home in order to save the world. So what music, TV, books, or even podcasts are taking your minds off the great task in hand? Stuart, we've done a lot of uh, technology talk today. What's keeping you occupied when you're you're not working on Zoom? Yeah, well, so to get away from the 800-page Labour report on squabbling, I'm reading the Hillary Mantel book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 800 pages of court, court squabbling and I'm near the end I'm like I'm, I'm about page 750 and all the books that I've got queued up to read afterwards are cheering me on saying you can finish it you can do it um, and I'm down the Animal Crossing rabbit hole the game um, right. which is I'm not sure if I'm, I'm judged for that or not but that's been my just potting around cleaning up weeds and cutting down trees has been my evening relaxation Ian how about you what, what's your uh, escape route at the moment uh, I'm I'm re-watching all the Marvel films in a desperate <laughs> bid to, to feel all right again, um, which is through Disney Plus, God bless them, which is yeah. actually quite, well, it's quite a shitty stream. I mean, it, it constantly stops on me. I don't know if anybody else has this, but it just fucking stops. And then you've got to kind of go around the back end and get it started again, which, you know, when Thor is wielding his mighty hammer, it's not precisely what, what I wish to take place. Um they're fucking great those films but i'm kind of surprised by what i don't like and and what i do like i found like if you go back to like early iron man films they feel pretty fucking dated in many ways like i suppose the gender stuff and just like fucking hell it's like looking at another world and the same with the the music is atrocious weirdly thor 2 thor 2 which was my least favorite marvel film 
Yeah. Maybe it was diminished expectations, but I watched it this time and I was like, you know what? That's actually pretty good. It's, it's quite funny. And so it's changed in the list, my list of favorite Marvel films, which I keep updated daily as I go through this process. What's at the top? Well, I mean, it's not a very interesting answer, but the reality is Infinity Wars and Endgame has to be at the top. Like, yeah. it, just, it has to be there because it's just like a culmination, not just of, of like this massive, great, big sort of storyline, but also basically of every dream I ever had about <laughs> what I could possibly watch on a cinema screen from the age of five. Message has just popped up in the corner of the screen. Helen Lewis has left the chat. Helen. I mean, it's just a really very mediocre film, Ian. I mean- oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that is shocking. Shocking. Um, Helen, I mean, what's your I, escape I, 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 Yeah, I know. Maybe I should have been. I mean, um, I actually, I have got Disney+. Plus. Um, my other half has been watching The Mandalorian, but I don't care enough. But I did watch... Um, <laughs> Free Solo, the documentary about a man trying to climb um, El Capitan in uh, Yellowstone, which was just nice. It was just nice to see outside. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember trees and mountains. Yeah, it was great. So um, I highly recommend that if you've got Disney Plus. And uh, I just finished reading Craig Brown's new book about the Beatles, one, two, three, four, which he's done in the style of his Princess Margaret book, which was 99 glimpses of Princess Margaret. This is 150 glimpses of the Beatles. But it's kind of, it, it's, fa- it, I mean, not only is it fascinating, because I know you know, and we all know that, you know, the Beatles finished when George Harrison was 27, which is just <laughs> makes you feel exceptionally old. But you just, the, 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 the briefness of the phenomenon, you know, and how quickly they, got so tired of it and and how much they aged in that you know five years that they were doing concerts is extraordinary to me and just how much unhappiness that level of success creates not just in all of them but in everybody around them all of the pop stars who were suddenly you know yesterday's news um just you know i i i thought it was it was a great way to, to write a biography um about people that you think you know everything about or that there have been you know a billion books written about just taking it in these weird sideways looks at it um so i would highly recommend that to anyone who is a medium beatles fan rising to high beatles fan it's a shit business as they said um my um <laughs> My escape route is I've set myself a project. Well, I'm well, stuck indoors and stuck in front of a computer. Well, I might as well kind of get my uh, get my money's worth out of it. So I've set myself an eBay uh, task of getting all of the Blood and Fire reggae reissues that were great in the nineties, <laughs> and I managed to never keep up with them. So I'm now I'm now working my way through, holding a copy of King Tubby Dub Gone Crazy: The Evolution of Dub at King Tubby's 1975 to 1979. So if anybody out there has got a spare copy of King Tubby's Prophecy of Dub by Yabby Yu, you know I'm in the market for it. 35 quid on Discogs. But if you've got, if you've got to be locked indoors with nothing to put on the television but a YouTube screensaver of an aquarium or a drone flying over a Greek island to remind yourself that the universe exists, then old reggae off, uh, off eBay is the way to go. And that is the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Stuart Dredge. Thanks for coming in. And uh, we'll keep an eye on you for technology in The Guardian. Uh, <laughs> okay. No, thank you. It's been really good to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. Hello, Lewis. Thanks for coming on. We'll see you again soon. Thank you very much. Buy my book. Buy my book, yes. And <laughs> Ian, uh, Ian Dunn, we'll see you soon. Buy your, book, buy your book if it ever comes out. Um, Indeed, yeah. Yeah, you're on Romaniacs tomorrow as well, aren't you? So double duty. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ian Dunt and Helen Lewis. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.